Hello, I'm Alex Hannaford and this is The Innocence. Hello, I'm producer Pete and today we are talking to Tim Howard. Tim Howard. It's a fascinating case as usual. Murders of a Little River County couple and attempted murder of their child. In December 1997, the body of a man called Brian Day was found in the back of a U-Haul trailer. Brian was shot and dumped inside a U-Haul truck. His wife Shannon was found strangled inside their home. And their infant son, Trevor, was found alive, but with a cord wrapped around his neck. The couple's baby was found inside a duffel bag with a cord around his neck, injured but alive. How does Tim Howard fit into this? Tim was the man accused of the couple's murder. He was also the day's best friend. In 1999, after a trial that lasted just three days, he was sentenced to death. Now, uh, before we listen to the interview... um, Tim Howard is black, the days were white, and that kind of has a bearing on the trial, as you can probably imagine. Tim had no previous convictions, and he refused to plead guilty to a crime he said he didn't commit, choosing instead to stay in prison on death row for 15 years until he could prove his innocence. As usual, this is a a pretty interesting case with lots of twists and turns along the way. Yeah, I mean, he sort of starts off the interview by sort of explaining where he was um, as a person back in uh, 1997. He was no angel, was he? No, well, that's the point. I mean, he he says they were all into drugs, um, you know, and petty crime and all the rest of it. And he wasn't a, a good person in that respect. But, you know... (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't make him a murderer, as you'll hear. I mean, there was withheld evidence from uh, by the prosecution. In 2013, a judge actually granted Tim a new trial. And the reason for that granting a new trial was on the basis that the state had withheld evidence from the defence. Most notably, that there were problems during the DNA testing of hairs that were found on this pair of boots that you'll hear about that were used to link Tim to the murders. But the defence now learned in 2013 that the DNA could have been contaminated and that if the jury had heard that, they could and would probably have reached a different conclusion. So, like I said, there's lots of twists and turns. There's sort of, you know, the race thing comes into it. And uh, Tim is very eloquent in explaining the problems with his uh, with his case. And he's been out for about three years now. Is that right? Yes, he was finally paroled in 2017. Howard had previously been denied parole in 2015, despite a retrial that made him immediately eligible. And it's probably worth saying now that he had a a retrial in, in 2015. He wasn't actually acquitted, was he? He was found guilty again. He was. So the conviction was overturned um, and he was found guilty of a lesser charge of second degree murder. Um, And then that same year, he was actually denied parole. And then it wasn't for another couple of years, 2017, that the parole board finally freed him. And still, the state has not admitted that he was innocent. A quick word from one of our sponsors. There's almost always a rise in break-ins during the holiday. Uh, it's why Simply Safe Home Security is having a huge holiday sale. 40% off any Simply Safe system and a free security camera. 
Recently, US News and World Report called it the best home security of 2020. So if you're traveling or staying put for the holidays, check out the 40% off plus free security camera deal before it ends this week. I set up my equipment in about 30 minutes. It sends you everything you need, high-resolution camera, sensors, even a sign for the front yard, and it's really easy to install, and my house is now protected with 24-hour monitoring. It won CNET's Editor's Choice for Home Security and was named Best of 2020 by Forbes and Popular Mechanics. The system's got an arsenal of sensors and cameras that protect every inch of your home. Plus, there's no contract, no hidden fees, no installation costs, uh, and then Simply Safe security specialists take over, monitoring your home around the clock, and they're ready to send emergency help the moment there's an alarm. So get 40% off Simply Safe plus a free security camera today by visiting simplysafe.com slash masses and hurry. This deal expires on Friday. Simplysafe.com slash masses. Good Wi-Fi connection and good mic. Yeah, I think this is fine, actually, Tim. Okay. Where are you at the moment? In my living room. Are you in Texas? No, uh, Little Rock. Oh, Arkansas. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there. Timothy Howard was released from prison 20 years ago to the day that Brian and Shannon Day were found slain at separate crime scenes. You were 28 years old when the police came to your apartment in Texarkana, Texas, to arrest you for murder. Can you describe what happened that day, what you were doing, what they said? Well, you got to understand, three days before that is when all this took place. Mm. So the day they came to arrest me, I knew they were going to arrest me. I just didn't know when. My girlfriend at the time, who became a wife and he has since died, her name was Kim. It was kind of dust dark in the evening. One of her friends had called her and she was going to leave the apartment for where me and the kids were to go to her house. I said, okay, I'll walk you to the car. When you come back, I want you to call me so I can come out and get you. And she said, okay. So she left the house and she was back within five minutes. And I knew then because she walked up to the door and rang the doorbell. And when she said, it's me, babe, I knew the cops were with her because she didn't have time to get to where she was going, number one. And number two, she got out of the car and rang the doorbell. As soon as I opened the door, they jumped me. Wow. You know, and the kids are hollering and screaming. And, you know, she's, I told you he was alone. He don't have a gun. You mentioned kids, Tim. My next question actually was to tell us a bit about Tim Howard in 1997. So you you had a girlfriend. You had kids as well. Tell us about what your situation was. I had a couple of girlfriends and a wife at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two girlfriends were sisters. And my wife, who I'd been married to for several years, so I had, Kim had three kids, Vicky had one. I mean, it was a pretty good life, you know. I just, I ran around, I partied, I worked, I, you know, I mm. did what I wanted. And you said you were you were anticipating, because um, this murder had happened, that you were anticipating getting picked up for it. What you thought had happened and, and why you thought you were being basically uh, framed for it? Well, let's not get, I, I don't, I don't want to give anybody the false impression. I was right to be considered a suspect. Mm. Me and my friend both, we were criminals. We did drugs. I mean, we stole stuff, you know. We both had our own thing that we did separately. So it was no surprise. No, no surprise that they, you know, wanted me for questioning. But when it first happened, me and Brian had had a thing going and he needed a place to meet. And so I gave him our family place. My family had 180 acres. Mm. And there was only different parts that were used for different things. It was not unusual for people to be out there late at night, depending on which end you were on. I dropped Brian off at my house and went back to his house 
to get uh he he used a U-Haul truck. So I left his house in the wee hours of the morning. Shannon and Baby were still there, but when I'm coming back, he's not home. So I head to where I dropped him off at, and I started meeting police cars and ambulances. But this time, I don't know what happened. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, "Oh my shit! What you know? What's he done? And what's going on?" Hmm. Because as I get closer, there's only one place they can be going. So I turn around, I leave, and that's when it starts unfolding over the next couple of days. What happened? You mentioned that you weren't squeaky clean. You were into drugs and stuff. I think he was as well. Did you think that that was probably drug related or something bad had happened? Someone, I mean, who would have wanted to have done that to him and her? To this day, I, I, I don't speculate what anybody's names or anything like that. Mm. Who who would have? I mean, but which they went through all of, a lot of this at court as far as what drug people he owed, who he was dealing with, because we had two different sets of people, me and him. Yeah. My idea was mostly stolen stuff. I mean, I, I sold tires. I sold guns. Wasn't a good drug dealer because I did all my drugs. So I couldn't do that, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he sold drugs. And me and him, we didn't really do any drug deals together. We just did drugs together. We lived across the street from each other for several years, you know. Hmm. He had clothes at my house. I had clothes at his. We had keys to each other's house. I mean, we were just, we were just like brothers. You must have thought this was a huge mistake and that, in a few days, they're going to realize they've got the wrong person. They're going to let me go. What was the, when did you feel like the line of questioning turned? They weren't looking for anybody else. They felt they had the right person. Do you remember that pivotal moment? I, I remember that moment with Matt Carter, the Public Defenders Commission. He basically said, look, dude, uh, you're not getting out. If you, even if you had a bond, if you said it a million dollars and you made it, they'd raise it. You're not getting out. And this is what you're facing. And if you get death row, you're at least going to be there at least 10 years. I mean, he just broke it all the way down the whole the way the whole thing would play out. He didn't mince words. He told you it straight by the sounds of it. He was honest from day one, you know, and I guess that's why me and him got along. After that, he left that evening. It was a total game chain. It was a shock. Tim, you, you know, one of the things we're exploring in this series is about this concept of the indigent defendant, the, the defendant that's from a poor background that just can't afford you know, these hotshot lawyers that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, you had a court-appointed attorney. Your family, I'm assuming, I mean, did they have any money? Could they pay for a decent lawyer for you? Or what was the deal there? I had a couple of family members who were willing to sell some land and put land up to pay a lawyer. And a couple of them came, but they were just too expensive. So they went to the NAACP at the time, and they said, well, if y'all make a $25,000 donation, we'll look into it. Well, hell, if we could afford that, we'd have a lawyer. Hmm. public defenders get a bad rap some of them there's a reason why but when i got matt carter as a public defender him lance womack i mean they worked diligently on my case they were just overwhelmed and there was just no way of getting me out of there what was the public defender's strategy did you feel that you were in good hands did you feel like you had a good shot at this when the trial was coming up again it's one of those things i was lucky to have got matt carter because i didn't know at the time most public defenders' job is, if you expect you got a death sentence, is to save your life. It's not to get you out. It's not to prove your innocence. Mm. It's just to find a way to save your life, which is why they do that all that background stuff. You know, mm. you have one of the lawyers who is like more or less a social worker. She wants to do your family history. Well, I had notified all my family, don't talk to these people about this because the way I was taking it at the time is they use it as an excuse. And they say, well, if he did it, this is why. His bad childhood, and he's slow learner, you know, he's retarded or whatever it is. I was innocent and I wasn't going to make any deals about anything. If you can't get me out, kill me. And luckily, Matt went on innocent. He tried to find the killers. Him and Lance Womack, they went all over. They traced every lead that they could. 
but the courts down there just stymied them at every turn. You know, mm-hmm. we were still mm-hmm. receiving evidence two days before trial that they accidentally found. Wow. So their strategy was basically, let's find the real killer. Yes, that, that was his strategy. Mm. By the way, uh, sorry, I meant to ask you this. How long between your arrest and, you know, you're in jail awaiting trial? How long between then and your actual trial date? I was in the county jail almost two years. Two years in, you waited. for two years for a trial. It took three days. Yeah, that's insane. So two years you're, you're awaiting in jail a trial that you hoped would find you innocent because you knew you were innocent, but you're already in jail. I mean, there's nothing can, yes. no one can, no one can give you back that time that you've been in, in jail already. You've done a two year sentence by the time you come up for trial. Yes. And what, what they do is in every capital case does this, they'll ask for a mental evaluation. But when they do that, that speedy trial thing stops. Mm. It don't start back until you have your mental evaluation. Well, it took 14 months for them to take me from little river to little rock for six hours. And that was my mental evaluation. They took me back and my time started again. 14 months. So over a year just to get you a mental evaluation. Yes. Wow. The prosecution's theory at the trial was that you had got Shannon pregnant and that you killed her and her husband in order to keep that information from being known. But we know that she had a post-mortem or an autopsy, as as it's called in America, showing she wasn't pregnant. Yes. But this so-called motive was still presented to the jury. Yes. And the woman that found it at the time, who became my appeal attorney, she read everything line by line and she found these handwritten notes that showed, you know, clearly she wasn't pregnant. She'd just come out for menstrual the whole nine yards. The prosecutor still used it to inflame the jury. That was all it was for, basically. I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but what were the racial implications of that for the jury? Well, Ashdown is a very racist town. But you grow up down there and it's just it's just like second nature. You don't really, really pay attention to it. The first time I showed up to court, my side is what you would call all white. The other side's all white. And as far as me running around as a person down there, all my friends were white. My wives were white. And it just it that was just another strike against me. So in other words, it was a tactic to. Uh, horrify this jury, presumably, that like here is a, a black guy that's got this white woman pregnant and killed her and her husband to cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. Yes. This was a shock tactic for the jury in the, an all, presumably an all white jury as well, right? Well, there, there's one black lady on there. Hmm. But I mean, Miss Ida, she fell asleep most of the time and her husband worked <laughs> for, her husband had been around, working around the courthouse probably 30 years. I mean, so she was basically just there just for color reasons. So, so with the jurors that actually sat in your trial, was there just one African American, one black yes, person three. on the- yes, three. three? Okay, okay. So three, three out of three out of twelve. Yes. Uh, the other thing that it, at the trial was that your DNA was apparently found. This was the big thing that they brought up at the trial. Your DNA was found on a pair of Brian's work boots. But what we didn't know at the time in this trial, and what we'd later find out, was that a lab technician at the DNA lab had made notes describing possible contamination of this evidence. She, the, mm-hmm. Apparently the, the cap had popped off a container spilling fluids. And what we later found was this was withheld by the prosecution. Yes. And they, they, they weren't Brian's work boots. The work boots were mine. Mm. But at the place that they were found, which is four miles from the crime scene, at the spot they were found were down a ravine sitting side by side. The way that the prosecutor says it happens, there's just no way that it could have. Our theory was, you know, somebody put him there, which the guy that found him said there were feet printing away from him, you know. 
But my thought has always been nobody would know they were they were mine. I think they just used the boots because they were in this U-Haul. They just used them for whatever reason. I don't know why. Why don't you just leave them there? If you want to frame me, you just leave them there. Hmm. What would you say was the biggest part of the trial that the prosecution used successfully to persuade the jury that you were guilty? What would you say was the biggest thing? It'd have to be putting the thought in their head that me and Shannon are having sex behind my friend's back hmm. and my ex-wife. Hmm. And then you bring up, well, he's dating all these women and two of them are sisters, you know, and one of the sisters got that she hated my guts at this time. Just all of that. The race issues, really. The race issues and, and your unconventional lifestyle with multiple girlfriends and that doesn't play well with the jury. That all builds up a picture in their mind. It's a character assassination, basically. Conviction for the slayings of a Little River County couple and the attempted murder of their child. Howard has maintained his innocence. Timothy Howard was found guilty in 1999 of killing Brian and Shannon Day and the attempted murder of their seven-month-old son. Were you surprised when you were found guilty? No. No, because of as the trial went along, everything that the judge let in that he wasn't supposed to, the case should have been thrown out several times. And he made an order for the police to turn over all the evidence. And they found photos and Lance did in the bottom of a basement at the police station in the back of one of the uh, officers' car three days before trial. The officer that found it said, oh, well, I just found this, and I, so I want to turn it over. But it's three days before trial. And the judge's excuse, well, where you got it, so... Tim, you said at the beginning, which was surprising to me, that when you were sentenced to death, for you, it was like it was better than a life sentence, which to some people listening may sound shocking that you would prefer to be executed for a crime you didn't commit than spend the rest of your life in prison for a crime you didn't commit. When you were taken to death row in Arkansas, can you describe to us what the, the cell was like and what your daily routine was like? Well, the first thing is, you know, you, you get it and they take you immediately, almost immediately, because that night that I got it, they took me back to my cell, took all my stuff out of the cell and set a guard outside my cell who cried all night, you know, because we got to be friends over two years, me and this guard. We, we hated each other when it first started. You know, he hated me and I hated him, but we became great friends. He got the word when he got to know me after the first three months. I mean, he started bringing me lessons from home. I would sleep till he came in and he would wake me up when he got there. And, you know, when I went to death row, he would do stuff for my daughter at the time. He bought a prom dress. You've gone back to the jail cell to get your stuff. And this guard, who you've known for two years now, has broken down crying. Yes. And you got to understand this. Even while the jury was deciding my fate, the sheriff, who at the time, Danny Russell, who also got to be a pretty good guy. I mean, he made a few amendments so I could keep in contact with my family. He came over to our table and said, look, here's what we're going to do when they come up with the verdict. We're going to put y'all in Tim. We're going to go out through this tunnel and we're going to put y'all in cars because they all thought it was going to be a not guilty verdict. Mm. Every cop in the room. So when they said guilty, all the air went out of the building. You know, they couldn't believe it. Mm. But anyway, we go back to the room. They take all my stuff out. And the next morning, they take me to death row. When you get to death row, they take you to the warden's office. He said, call your family so they know we, we haven't ate you anything, that you're okay. They let me make a phone call to my wife at the time. So when you hang up, they give you the rules and tell you what to do and not to do. You know, who to trust and not to trust, that type thing. And then they take you to your cell and put you in it. You're in this room by yourself and it's just, it is what it is. How many hours a day are you on your own? You're in there all day by yourself unless you got to go to the doctor's yard call. You, you don't get any recreation? That's what they call a yard call. But it's basically going out to a dog pen 
and they put you in it by yourself. They handcuff and shackle you. You walk out to it, and they put you in this little pen, and you can walk up and down the side and talk to the guy beside you. How long are you in there for? One hour? One hour. So one hour a day exercise in this yard pen on your own, 23 hours a day in a solitary cell? Yes. In the cell, can you hear or talk to any of the other death row prisoners? Yes, and you got to understand, all this changes over the years. When I first got there, we were at Tucker Max, and they had bars on the cells. And all the cells are side by side and on top. Hmm. And y'all share a TV. Two people share a TV that's on the outside of the cell. We use strings to fish stuff up and down the tier for food, notes, games, whatever. You get a little bit of string or cotton, and you can tie the note to it. And then you, you learn how to, to whip these notes, basically, along the floor under the cell to, to each other, correct? Well, at this particular time, we didn't need to do it under the cell because there were bars on the door. So you take a mm. piece of cut-up sheet, and it may be 25 feet long. I mean, because you got several guys who like to play D&D games. <laughs> and they would slide it back and forth and play on this piece of paper and make it this little fantasy game. Or if I want a bag of chips and it's down the aisle down there, a bag of coffee, I throw it down there, tie it to a string, you pull it back. It gets a little harder when they move to our next spot that had a solid door, which drove a lot of the guys crazy. I mean, literally crazy. Hmm. The thing about being in a solitary cell is you, if you're not mentally capable, you're not going to make it. Well, this is really interesting. Okay, so this is really interesting, this concept of being mentally capable. How do you do that? How do you train yourself to be able to stay in this cell 23 of 24 hours a day for as long as it takes? Some people ask that question. And the first thing you got to tell them is you got no choice. The door is locked. It's something you got to do. It's how you do it what makes the difference. How did you do it, Tim? Luckily for me, I had already liked to read a little bit before I got there. Before that, in the county jail, I lived my, the way I had to start living my life was I wake up every morning and say, if I get tired, I can kill myself. And that's the way I lived my life for almost two years. Then that's how I got through it. Now, as far as death row, I lived in books. What books? Is, it, is there a specific type of book? And is this about escapism? I grew up, I don't think I ever, I, I liked horses and cows, and I never wanted nothing but either a diesel truck or, or a bigger farm. I didn't really know there was another world outside of that. It wasn't until I started reading uh, historical fiction, Ken Follett, a bunch of them, that there were life in other places like London, England, Germany. You know, I didn't know there was a world or a life outside of what I lived. Mm. Was it for you a way of exploring the world through books? Was that was that yes. the kind of it? So, so it was basically an, a way of enlarging your own world, even though you were in this tiny little cell, but through literature. I got lucky. I wound up to where people would send me books. My lawyers would send me books. I had a couple people from England send me books. Mm. And I'll read like three books at a time. This morning I might be in England doing something. This evening I'm in Montana. You know, the next day I might be in New York, but it, it just kept me engaged in different places. Did you feel like you were in those places when you were reading? Yes. If, if, if I get a book that's 500 pages or longer, oh my God. Especially if it's a good writer. And the same thing with fantasy. Margaret Rice and Tracy Hickman and several others who just, they put you there. You know, the sort of truth books. What about your physical health? Did you always take these recreation hours? And what did you do to stay fit? Nothing. That's why I have diabetes. <laughs> so I like to eat. And so I just ate most of the time. I mean, I, at one point I got almost 280 pounds. Did you ever have to go to the prison hospital in yes. the time you were? Yeah. Well, that's how I found out I had diabetes. Mm. I mean, I woke up one morning and thought I was bleeding to death. And it wasn't. It was just excess sugar coming out. So they put me on medication and... 
when it got worse and worse over the years, and they were talking about putting me on the uh, insulin, that's when I started exercising, started losing weight. You were in a solitary cell. You really didn't have interaction with anybody else physically, but I wondered whether there was ever any violence in the prison. There's violence. I've seen uh, uh, one guy get stabbed in the eye by another inmate because they were at the corner cell together, and we, we turned our TVs with little sticks, a rolled-up paper that was extending into like a little wand. You punched the TV, with a, and it had a pin on the end of it. Well, Jack Jones and Roger Coulter got into an argument one day, and they were side by side in these cells at, at the corner. My cellmate next to me, Raymond Sanders, told me, he said, now you watch. I hadn't been on the road very long. He said, uh, Jack's going to forget that he said this to Roger, and Roger's not going to forget. And sure enough, it's about three days later, Jack comes to the door to say something, and Roger stabbed him in the eye with that deal. I mean, right there in the side of the eye with the ink pen. Um, I've seen a guard get attacked by a guy that she pissed off two weeks before at the door. He was handcuffed and shackled, but he still tried to bite her and, you know, hold her down, fall on her to, to do more damage. So there is violence. And of course, there was violence in population the last two years, but it's just part of it. Hmm. Did you ever get attacked or anything? No. And at the 20 years I was locked up, I had one write up. My mustache was too long. And, and, the, and the woman threw that out. She said, he's been in here almost 18 years. And this is what y'all write him up for. She said, get him out of my office. The Innocence wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsors. There's a world of entertainment options out there. And by that, I mean, there's a lot of compelling international shows that you may be missing out on. And it's time to burst the domestic TV bubble and check out Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a commercial-free streaming service that's rooted in British television. It's home to sophisticated and artful storytelling with top-rated mysteries, addictive dramas, heartfelt comedies, and so much more. And unlike other British streaming services, Acorn TV also has content from Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and beyond. And if you're a fan of quirky British comedy, then The Other One is a must-watch. It follows two sisters from very different worlds who had no idea The Other One existed until their father drops dead. And for Downton Abbey fans, The Other One features a hilarious performance from beloved Siobhan Finneran. So I installed it on my Roku device and my family instantly became slightly addicted to The Yorkshire Vet, a documentary series that follows the goings-on at the original veterinary surgery of James Herriot, who wrote All Creatures Great and Small. Now, you can give the gift of Acorn TV with their Black Friday deal from now until November the 30th. Buy one annual gift membership and you'll get the second membership for 50% off. And buy as many annual gift memberships as you want and the 50% off still applies. So escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code masses as in huddled masses. Plus when you buy an annual gift membership, you'll get the second for 50% off during their black Friday deal. That's acorn TV, A C O R N dot T V code masses to get your first 30 days for free. Tim, did, did people visit you? Yes. When I first got there, the ex-wife I was talking about, she came almost every week. Of course, the lawyers visited me from time to time. And my mom visited me from time to time. Jordan Harden used to come from time to time. So, yes, I mean, I got out to have my three-hour visit. And did, did you have hope when people like John, you mentioned John Harden from Proclaim Justice and the lawyers visiting you from time to time. Did that give you hope that there were people on the outside working to get you freed? It did. because. You go through life, you know, when people do something nice, you wait for the other shoe to drop. And I went 
that way with a lot of them for, for a long time because usually when a person comes into your life, they'll stay there for three or four months and then they're gone. Same thing with a pen pal. So you keep waiting for them to go away. But when you find people who have actual organizations like John or lawyers and, and they're in your life, like, okay, well, you'll ask them why. And then they, when they tell you why, it just don't sound right. It's like, no, nobody's that nice. You know, come on. This is, this is what you do every day. Come on. You know, so it makes you feel good. Know that somebody's looking when you lay down at night. Well, there's peaks and troughs, though, in what happened to you. I mean, you then have your first automatic appeal and the justices let the conviction stand. I mean, at that point, when there are these lows, do you feel, I've just lost all faith, I'm never going to get out? And then suddenly a lawyer comes back the next day and says, don't worry, we've got another shot at this? Well, my direct appeal was kind of odd. Because the, the decision was 4-3, which means if I'd had one more vote, I'd have been out instead of mm. one vote to lose it. Everybody was amazed. Even the people on the road that have been there for years, they said, man, this is a good thing. You know, they're trying to, you know, tell me how, you know, this is my first go around with the courts. I don't know. The lawyer who did it, Janice Vaughn at the time, she said, I know you don't want to hear this now, but this is good. This is good. I didn't realize the uh, ramifications it would have or the magnitude of it. Even when I read that the main judge that wrote the opinion against me, what he cited for doing it was my strange behavior. It wasn't evidence, just my strange behavior. Howard's earlier convictions were thrown out in 2013. Then in 2015, a new trial for Howard was ordered after the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled that the lab compromised DNA samples. You mentioned Patrick Benker. You got this attorney to work for you pro bono. And in 2004, so you'd been on death row a few years, you successfully claimed the lawyers that represented you were incompetent. You wanted a DNA expert to testify that, that, you know, we talked about withholding evidence. But after 14, it took 14 years of being on death row for your sentence to be vacated and then you receive a new trial. In 2015, you got that new trial. Did you think then that this nightmare was over? You know, when I wrote to Patrick and I asked him to come see me and I told him why I wanted him to come see me. I wrote Patrick and asked him, on the chance that I do get a new trial, I want you to read my case during this time and bone up for it. He came down there. He said, what did you want me to do? I said, I want you to read my whole case. I'll give you permission to have all my records. On the off case, I get a new trial. He said, okay, I'll do it. I said, well, why? He said, because it's just the right thing. This is wrong. When we went back to the day I got my new trial, we were going back for a hearing. We weren't going back. We were, it was just an actual, just regular hearing. And when we got in there, Patrick presented what he was going to present. And Judge Jurgen got up there and he, as he went to talking, his language changed. And he started saying those stuff like, even though I know we really don't want to, but in the uh, presence of not wanting to seem unfair and prejudiced. And I'm like, where's he going with this? When he said that he, he's giving me a new trial, you couldn't believe it. It's not something that he wants to do. I still believe to this day, had the prosecution just told the truth from the start, I'd still be in prison. Because there was enough ambiguity for the jury to do what they still did, but we wouldn't have been in to find anything per se that they lied about that the court would have said, okay, you know, here you go. Now, on that retrial, this time the withheld evidence could be admitted. I think the Daily Beast described it as the most surreal murder trial in America. You had the same judge. And at the end of that retrial, it wasn't over for you. What happened? Here's the difference. And this is not a slam against Mike Carter or Lance Womack, who were great people 
They worked with what they had and resources. The difference in my second trial was Patrick Binker. The difference in my second trial was I had a trial that lasted almost three weeks, not three days. When Patrick goes in the trial, you've seen those show bones and cold case and all that. If Patrick gets on that, on the, if he's questioning the person, you'll think he's a bullet expert. If he's questioning yeah. a DNA expert, you think that's what he went to school for. It's mm. just like watching TV. It's, he's awesome to watch in court. And he's very, very detailed in what he does. As good as he was, you were innocent, and yet you were acquitted of all capital and first-degree charges, but the conviction stood on second-degree charges, and you were actually sentenced to 38 years, but you ended up being credited for time served or in, in some portion of time served. So you still had to serve another three years. Why did you feel that the jury still found against you that you had something to do with this crime? There's still that prejudice. It's there. Hmm. But the funny thing is there were a couple of juries on that jury, one of which we did not want on there. We thought that she was the worst person ever for us, but we left her to get the person behind her. We didn't want to use a strike. She turned out to be one of the biggest champions that I had, her and another woman. Mm. And they fought for me tooth and nail. And I found out, you know, after that was over and I went back to prison for the next two years, they started writing me. And I found out what happened in the jury room in a sense. You know, half of them believe he didn't do it, but they know who did, he won't tell. Mm -hmm. The other half believe he had nothing to do with it. The only deal they could have did other than have a hung jury, which would have sent me back to trial and I could have got convicted all over again, mm. was make this deal. And all of them signed a paper saying, look, because they asked the judge, if we sentence him to guilty, do we get to make the sentence? And he says, I can't tell you until you give me the verdict. And so mm. they got to make the sentence and they made it to where it would be time served. And they signed. That's what they were signing. The prosecutor still wanted me to do nine more years, even with that deal. I mean, they gave me 38 years, which put me nine years past my parole date. I was supposed to be let out mm. immediately. But when I got sent back and got a number, they decided, well, no, he's going to have to go for parole. And when I did, they denied me two years. Former death row inmate Tim Howard was released from Varner Supermax Prison yesterday afternoon after 20 years in prison, 14 of them on death row. The state parole board voted last month to parole Howard, who had been in prison since 1997. He was denied parole in 2015, but released last Wednesday after 20 years behind bars, most of that time on death row. December 14th, 2017, which is, you know, three years ago, really not that long ago, Tim. That was the day you were released. Can you remember that? What, can you tell us about that moment? I remember leaving the place. But getting in that car and leaving the place, it, it was, I, I just kept waiting for somebody to come grab me and say, well, no, you ain't supposed to be leaving yet, you know, and put me back in there. And it's just here in the last year that I got to where I could sleep in my house without, if I hear a noise, I would get up and I would sneak out the back door and I'd get my truck and I'd leave because I thought the cops were coming. It's just gotten out where, I mean, I could stay in the house. I still don't sleep all night, but that's just a product of, you know, being up at 2.30 in the morning for 20 years. Howard was released on parole from the Varner Supermax prison in Lincoln County. He's currently on maximum suspension that requires employment, periodic drug testing, no association with the victim's family, and obeying a curfew. His suspension will likely end sometime in 2035. So release eventually for you would still come with a conviction. What did that mean to you, Tim? 
But it meant for me I couldn't get into any trouble because they made it plainly clear when they let me go. If you get violated, get into any trouble and come back, you're going to serve mm-hmm. out your sentence. So with all this Black Lives Movement things and the riots and stuff that we had here, and when they set in curfews, I got a couple of guys who work for me sometimes who are also felons. I mean, we were trying to be real careful because it's a nerve-wracking thing if the cops pull you over. You know, we can't go to jail for anything. So we were coming home early, and it's, it's a little frustrating, to be honest. I started out, I had to go to parole twice a month. Then it was uh, once a month. Now I'm once a year. Tim, you, you're technically free. We're t- I'm talking to you. You're in your house in Little Rock. Do you feel free? Most times I do. Some days I struggle. What legal avenues are available to you now, if any, to right the wrong, correct the record? Uh, there really ain't any. The only way I could be get any to right the wrong now is to be exonerated, which can only happen if they find the real killers, which is not going to happen. Is anyone looking for them? Not, not to my knowledge, no. Do you, do you have any um, anger or hatred for the people that did that to you, put you where you went? You know, I didn't think I did, but I, I do have anger now because I started therapy about a year ago and I, and I found out that I do have issues. But the way that I got past all that, I, I'm get past, is I have to blame myself first. Had I been where I was supposed to be and not doing what I was doing, they couldn't have blamed me. Bottom line is I put myself in a position to be blamed. So if I got to be mad at anybody, I got to be mad at myself first. So, Yeah, but I mean, this is the problem because there's so many people who become victims of the criminal justice system. And it's this concept of like, who is a, a perfect victim? You know, you were on the wrong side of the tracks, Tim, and you, you know, you were involved in drugs and crime doesn't mean that it was okay for you to be scapegoated for this murder. And I agree, but taking responsibilities for my own actions and seeing what I did wrong. I didn't kill anybody. I love my friends. I miss them to this day and, and miss their kids. But had I not been out running around or, or, or breaking the law and been at home with my kids where I was supposed to be, um, this may have never happened for me. Busu is an award-winning app that offers a fun and effective way to learn languages. Busu teaches 12 of the world's most popular languages, including Spanish, French and Japanese, and it lets you practice your new skills immediately with native speakers of the language you're learning. You get feedback on your writing and speaking skills, and you can help people learn English. Busu comes with tons of smart features like a study plan to help you keep motivated and organised, vocabulary and grammar training tools built by data scientists that make sure you remember what you learn. And you can start learning for free or choose to get a premium plan to unlock more fantastic features. I've been using Busu to brush up on my French, which we used to learn in school. Could have tried harder, Hannaford. The native speaker function's excellent. Flashcards teach you your new words and it tests you in numerous ways, speaking a sentence and then asking you to select the correct translation. So start learning with Busu by visiting busu.com. That's B-U-S-U-U.com or search Busu on the iOS App Store or Google Play. And to upgrade your learning with 30% off Busu Premium, use code MASSES, as in huddled masses.
So another really powerful interview, Alex, something that has really stayed with me since first listening to that is what Tim just said there about feeling that he has some kind of guilt because being the kind of character he was, being in trouble, he put himself in a situation where he was going to be a suspect for the murder of his best friend. He acknowledges he should have been a suspect and it would have been odd had he not been a suspect because he knew the victims he was involved in in crimes. But I mean, this is this kind of speaks to a wider problem with the death penalty that you have a disproportionate number of people on death row in America who who are these petty criminals who have come from these impoverished backgrounds who are kind of, you know, have a, a lives of, of sort of petty crime anyway. And so they're, therefore they're, they're sort of sympathy, there's no sympathy for them. So it's easier for the, the police and for prosecutors to get through a conviction and, and, a, and a death sentence on people like that because they can't afford decent attorneys. Actually, it's interesting. Um, the big, the most um, telling statistic, actually, for people on death row is that there are a disproportionate. So it's actually the, the race of the victim, not the race of the inmate. That's the tell. That's the the more drastic statistic. So you are much more likely to get the death penalty if you kill a white person than if you kill a black person. And yet, white people and black people are victims of murder in the same, you know, proportion. All very interesting, Al. If people are listening and they sort of want to know more about this, what are some good organisations that they can sort of go and check out their website? I would recommend, uh, actually I would recommend an organisation called the Death Penalty Information Centre. So the the website is deathpenaltyinfo.org and they have pretty much everything. It's a repository for everything to do with the US death penalty. Um, statistics, uh, you know, they, they break it down by race, by gender. They've got stuff there on the execution of um, people who were children when they committed their crimes that the Supreme Court put a stop to uh, a number of years back. I mean, you know, anything you want to know about the death penalty and in, in, in terms of sort of facts and figures as well uh, are on that website. And if people want to find out more about Tim Howard, the Proclaim Justice website would be the place to go, I imagine. Yeah, Proclaim Justice website is a good start and to find out about other cases that they're covering. But also, um, you know, you can find uh, court filings in Tim's case as well online. Um, it was covered extensively by uh, some newspapers in Arkansas where he lived. So, yeah, um, you can kind of go down a rabbit hole. All right. Well, that's enough for now, I think, Alex. I think it is. See you next week, Pete. I'll see you next week. I've got some help reading the credits, actually. Here is Scout. The Innocence is presented by my dad, Alex Hannaford. The producer and sound engineer was Peter Sale. Our theme music is I Shall Be Released by Pauline Niles, courtesy of Cherry Red Records. Thanks again to Tim Howard for today's interview. Thanks also to Proclaim Justice. The Innocence is a DMT media production for Audio Boom. Everything can be replaced They say every distance is not near